0: If you could take your Bibles, uh, I'm going to read the passage that uh, Derek Stringer will be preaching from today. It's Matthew 27. If you haven't got a Bible with you, there should be one in the chair in front of you. It's on page 835. Before I do that, Pastor Paul has asked me to introduce uh, Dr. Derek Stringer, uh, and that's mostly because although he's been In ministry in England and internationally for over 50 years he's now officially retired and having said that um, I've known him for over 40 years and uh, retired should be an inverted commas because he for the first time has come to Canada he flew into Tofino on Friday afternoon and we met him there and had a great 24 hours together and um, He volunteered when we were in touch last year to preach, and Pastor Paul kindly agreed. And he's taking a series of three, so he's actually different sermons um, at each of the services. And I think when you've heard him, you might well be tempted to come back tonight, because he's incredibly good value. So let's read the scripture together, and then I'll pray for Derek. Matthew 27, we're going to start at verse 50. And this is obviously in the context of the crucifixion. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This was the Son of God. You've seen from your um, brochure that there's also details of Derek's ministry inside, and the title of his talk is going to be Strange and Wonderful Christianity. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you again for the privilege of worship, Christian fellowship, and now the privilege of listening to your word. Thank you for preserving your word down the centuries, and thank you, too, for giving us your Holy Spirit, that he may take the things of Christ and show them to us. We pray that you will empower your servant Derek Stringer as he speaks today, that his words may not be with human authority, but by the power of your Holy Spirit. So bless your word to us, and open our own hearts that we may hear your voice. And apply what you have to say to us today because we ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Tony. And uh,
1: thank you very much for being here for this second service. I look around and I know some of you have stayed over from the first service, so I hope it will be good value. Uh, if it's not, please tell me afterwards. Um, and I'll try and correct it for the final one. Who knows, it might work. But you know how visiting speakers have a way of saying, by way of introduction, basically what is the same thing. It's nice to be with you. And it sounds so bland and ordinary, doesn't it? However much they might mean it. So I've had a little bit of time to think about it for this service, and I have come up with this. It is nice to be with you. I can't think of anything better to say, but it is true, and that of course is the most important thing. But a little twist on it for you. It is also nice that you are here too, because I've done my research on Vancouver Island, and I have come up with this fascinating piece of information which I was unaware of. People live in Vancouver Island, by and large, until they're 75 years old. But if you go to church, you will live by and large until you are 83 years old. So you are in a very safe environment right now. And I guess I ought to speak for a very, very long time because after all, I want to keep you safe and I want you to extend. Honestly, I'm not going to do that. But isn't that fascinating? Now, I know that it's down to lifestyle, but of course, if you don't come back next week, it could kill you. But there's all sorts of factors that are involved with the kind of lifestyle that we have and church involvement and church going is just one of them. But we all know that the ultimate statistic is one in one dies. So the key question for us all is what happens after I die? And it's an important question because what I think about life after death is going to impact in the manner in which I live in the here and now as to whether I spend time or I invest it in a way that's going to outlast it. It will determine an awful lot. For many generations, parents used to teach their children in England a little prayer. And you may be familiar with it. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Isn't that a cheery way to send your child off to bed at night? And did you know there is a second verse? Our day begins with trouble here. Our life is but a span, and cruel death is always near. So frail a thing as man. Good night, darling. Pleasant dreams. <laughs> But at least they're trying to get across death is real. Now, there are two ways to find out about life after death. One of those ways is die. Then you will find out. But the other way is for someone else to die but with many convincing proofs be raised again from the dead and to tell us what it's like on the other side. And then we have something honest and something helpful and something authentic. And isn't that what we have in Jesus Christ? And therefore, when we listen to what he says about the afterlife, that helps us because he did Get raised from the dead with many convincing proofs. But my point now is this. It was not only Jesus who was raised from the dead. That's what Matthew 27 is saying to us. In this incredibly strange event. Darkness came over the land for three hours at midday. But the most extraordinary event was an earthquake. It had an effect on the living. So the Roman centurion, who was officiating at the crucifixion for these three men, said there is something very strange and different about the one who is dying on that middle cross. But the strangest event happened to the dead. Most people couldn't afford a rock-hewn tomb, only the wealthy could afford that. So they would have a shallow grave on the hillside. And they would have a slab of stone which would be placed over it. And therefore, if you have an earthquake through the shaking of the earth, those slabs of stone will slide off, revealing the death and decay that is beneath them. Now, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. Jesus has been on the cross from nine in the morning. And we read, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open for three days. No repairs were done. This was a special religious festival. They didn't want to dirty their hands with death and thus be unable to enjoy it with their family. So do you see you've got this very strange situation here. Jesus' body was buried, but half a mile away were open tombs. And the extraordinary thing is this. Jesus wasn't the only one to be resurrected. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got all sorts of questions going around my mind right now. And to be honest with you, some of the questions I got, I haven't got a complete answer for. I asked the question, who were these people? Was King David? Among them, we know that he was buried in this area. Where did they go? What did they say? Did a child run in to the family home and say, Mum, Dad, Grandma's back. <laughs> Something very weird and strange is going on here. What happened after this event? Pepsi Cola ran a sales campaign in China On the incredibly successful slogan in the West Pepsi makes you come alive and it bombed because in Mandarin that read Pepsi makes your ancestors come back from the dead (laughs) and they were not so keen on that I don't know the answer to all sorts of questions that occur to me from what happened here but I do know this the Bible doesn't waste space And because this incident is included, it's got to have some significance. It's got to say something relevant to me about these events. And the more I look at this, the more I realize this is a very significant event. Both strange and wonderful. Let me try and show you something of its significance for us. First of all, and very simply, this is at least saying to us, we have a God who is a busy God. I mean, no human being could do what was going on here. People try to explain away the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. You might just get away with it with one body. But numbers of bodies like this? Either we say it's a fairy story, or we say... God did it. Only God can take dust and busily fashion it into a human being. And if people say it's a scientific impossibility, well, yes. But not an impossibility to the creator, God. And I think we should stop talking about scientific impossibilities to the almighty creator, don't you? And what God did in the Garden of Eden when he fashioned a human being, he was now doing centuries later to many human beings in the Kedron Valley. Looking at Christ's miracles of resurrection, have you noticed there is, during his earthly ministry, a progression? Begins with a little girl who has just died. A widow's son who had died a few hours earlier. And then Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, and now you come to the climax. Little girl after a few moments, a young man after a few hours, a grown man after four days, and now a cemetery with many holy people who had died, were raised to life. And because God is busy in resurrection power, do you see what that means for us? We don't just have a God who is a creator God, but we have a God who is a controlling God. We have a God who is involved with what he has made. He is involved with us. He is busy wanting to be involved, doing things in and through our lives so that his will in heaven can be done down here on earth, which means we can pray. And we can know that our prayers can be effective, not that there's any power whatsoever in prayer. Have you ever seen the slogan, there is power in prayer? And it's not true. There is no power whatsoever in prayer. The power is in God, not in prayer. But as we lay the track, the locomotive of God's Power can come along that track. But if I do not lay the track, the locomotive cannot come. And I sometimes wonder how much is building up in heaven that God wants to do through my life and cannot do it. I have not because I ask not. Or ask in too much of a general way rather than a specific way for what is his will in heaven to be done down here on earth. I have a busy God who is involved with me and wants to do things in and through me. Busy in another way, too. I can reckon on him in his busyness. You see, the Christian life isn't about what we can do for God. It's about what he can do in and through us. Because in our belief in him, he is so creative and controlling. He comes by the power of the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? To live in our human spirit. So if I want to live out the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the self-control, the goodness, anything, that's the fruit of his presence, Christ living in me. I can reckon upon him, reproducing that fruitfulness in and through my life. Because my Christian life isn't just a matter of knowing about God as some distant creator, but it's personal, it's Christ who becomes my life. Wanting to be busy to do things in and through me. The Christian life is all about that because we have a busy God. And just as he was busy back then creating and controlling and moving things on at his pants and his purposes, he'll want to be about the same things in each of our lives too. But I'll tell you something else from this particular event that I see significant for us. It shows me also that he banished death. I have never heard anybody say I have conquered death. Pastorally through the years i would heard plenty of people say I've cheated death. Death awaits us like the concrete floor, the falling light bulb. I came across an interesting poem. I think that the life school is backwards. You should die first. Get it out of the way. Then you live in an old age home. You're kicked out when you're too young. You go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy retirement. You go to college. You party until you're ready for high school. You become a little kid. You play, you have no responsibilities, you become a little baby, you go back to the womb, you spend your last nine months floating, and you finish off as a gleam in someone's eye. (laughs) That would be nice, but we can't live in reverse. But now, we can face death and win. That's the glory of this event. I can understand that Jesus would be raised from the dead because he's so different from me. But that these others would be raised from the dead too. In this we have proof that death is not oblivion. Some people will say to me, you know I've got a problem with what the Bible says about the afterlife. I mean, there are certain verses in the Bible, I read them, and it says, The moment I die, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And then I read other verses and other texts, and it says, I've got to wait. That there's a gap until Jesus comes again, and then we are all ushered into the new earth and the new heaven and the glory of that event. And I know I'm not heading towards a hopeless end, but an endless hope, I just wonder, have I got just to wait around until it happens? Is there a contradiction here? Do I stay buried until the resurrection? Or is it absent from the body, present with the Lord? Do you know the answer? Both. What happens when I die? I immediately enjoy the presence of the Lord. And yet, from a human perspective, There is a waiting, but only from the human perspective. You're no longer in time, you're in eternity. And understand that time is relative to motion. The faster one travels, the slower time moves. Suppose we could invent a space capsule which could go at the speed of 167,000 miles per second. After five years, time has slowed down, so you are five years older, moving at that space, level. But everybody else is ten years older. Now I'm giving you something I really don't understand here, it's called Einstein's Theory of Relativity. And some 13-year-olds in our schools in England will understand that better than me because in the school curriculum, that's when they start to learn about that aspect of physics. And that was a long time ago for me. But put it like this. You're in that space capsule. You're going even faster. What is one second for us is a 1,000 years for everybody else on planet Earth. Do you see what I'm saying? Time is compressed as we speed up. So the faster we go, it becomes more compressed. At the speed of light, time doesn't occur. Suppose I die this year, and in five years' time, Christ comes again. You could say, oh, Derek Stringer has been waiting five years for the return of Christ. From an earthly perspective, that would be true. But do you see, I am not now in time. I am in eternity. And in eternity, there isn't a past and there isn't a future. There is only the now. So absent from the body, present with the Lord. The Bible says, once I die, time shall be no more. Therefore, when I die, I will remain in my grave from an earthly perspective But the resurrection unto everlasting life has happened for me. And can I stretch your thinking a little bit further to show you what that must mean as you tie together physics with theology at this point? It means that when we stand at a gravesite and there's a gap in time and it's a loved one who has died, we weep. As Paul said, not as those who have no hope. But we're allowed to weep. But do you realize from their perspective, they're not missing anything? From their perspective in eternity, they are enjoying your company. Not you from an earthly perspective, but they're not on earth. They're not in time anymore, but in eternity. Do you see that that also means that nobody gets to heaven before anybody else? It means that Abraham, Moses, King David, Barnabas, Apostle Paul, none of those people get to heaven before Derek Stringer gets there. We all get there at the same moment because there is only one moment in eternity without a past, without a future. That stretches. But I hope at the same time it does for you what I've seen it do for a lot of people who are bereaved. It gives them comfort and gives them reassurance. And it comes out of this particular incident. This event is telling me God was busy back then because that's the kind of God that we have God who's a creator and God who is a controller, and that death was banished. Can I tell you something else significant that this tells us? We have a blessed life. Things happen, but there's a time limit. It may be lasting, but it's not everlasting. That's why it's a good thing to change from asking the question why of God to the question, what now, Lord? Now, it's not wrong to ask why. Even Jesus on the cross asked why. Why have you forsaken me as he experienced hell that we might know heaven? But you see, if you say what now, you're giving yourself a future. If you say why, you're not. If we only say why, we're building a brick wall. If we say what now, we're building a road. If we only say why, we could end up wallowing in self-pity. But if we say, what now, Lord? Give me wisdom in reacting to this trial, the best of ways. Then that helps us into the future, not to waste the brick that gets thrown at us, but to use it to build an extension to our spiritual well-being. William Sankster was a great English Methodist preacher and writer. And following some tests, his physician said to him, I am sorry to have to tell you, you have a paralysis disease, which will gradually take away all your bodily movements from you, and then you will die. When he got home, he wrote down four resolutions to guide his life. One, I will never complain. Two, I will keep my home bright. Three, I will count my blessings. Four, I will try to turn it to gain. On his last Easter Sunday, he wrote to his daughter, how terrible to wake up on Easter and have no voice to shout. He is risen, but far worse To have a voice and not want to shout. God does bless now. But they are tasters of the greater blessing that is to come. The main blessing has to come in eternity. You can see why, can't you? If it didn't and the blessing would come instantly, the moment you do something right before God, he would sap you with a blessing, you would be coerced by God. There'd be no freedom about that. You'd be manipulated by him so that you'd have to respond to his initiatives in your life. And actually, it would mean you wouldn't have found a place in this building this morning to hear the word of God. Because follow that through if the blessing instantly came in one moment of time when you did the right thing. People will be standing in line outside waiting for the doors to open so they can get in here really hungry to hear what the word of God says. To be able to do it so that they instantly get zapped with the blessing. They are manipulated by God so God says I do give you tasters of the blessing now but the main reward is going to come in eternity and then I'm not forcing you you can fall in line because you're falling in love with me and you want to respond to me but ultimately there is that blessing this event shows us God was busy death was banished life is blessed both now but to the maximum in the future And can I tell you another thing significant that this event says to us? It says we've got bodies forever. Jesus took pains to prove that he was no ghost. That's a great comfort. God's purpose for us is not to be ghosts floating around on clouds playing harps. Could you think of anything more boring than to do that for the rest of eternity? We put a potato into the ground and it rots and a new potato comes up from it. Similar to the old one, but it's a new one. That's a Bible picture actually. What happens in the garden will happen in the graveyard. Coming from our body will be a body of radiant health just like Jesus' body because he was the firstborn of a new creation. Our bodies wear out. I mean, I've been noticing that with my friends. (laughs) Of course, there's nothing happening to me, is how we like to view it. Do you know, from the age of 30, you start to shrink. I'll give you the sum on this. It's 0.0 with nine threes after it. Every year, you shrink. We live long enough, they'll bury us in a matchbox. Don't worry about losing your memory. Just forget it. (laughs) Don't worry about middle age. You'll grow out of it. And it happens so quickly. You notice that, some of us? Guess you have. Tender teens, teachable 20s, tireless 30s, fiery 40s, forceful 50s, serious 60s, sacred 70s, aching 80s, and the naughty 90s. (laughs) Because if you notice, the older you get, you can get away with an awful lot more. (laughs) They put it down to your age then but it happened so very quickly people ask will we recognize one another in the new earth and the new heaven often married couples will ask me that I kind of hope that they would like to (laughs) some Sadducees had that as a stock question for people like Pharisees and others who believed in the afterlife in a way in which they didn't and their question they tried it out on Jesus Well, here is a woman, she marries a man and he dies. So she marries his brother and he dies and marries his brother and he dies. And she works her way through seven brothers. To whom is she going to be married then in this coming kingdom? I don't know how you would reply to that. I'll tell you how I would reply. You need to check her cooking in the kitchen. There is something not quite right going on in that kitchen, I reckon, don't you? Reminds me of the woman who was married four times. The first was a millionaire, the second was an actor, the third was a pastor, and the fourth was a funeral director. That's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready, and four to go. But with a smug self-satisfaction, to whom will she be married when it comes to that time? And don't try it on with Jesus. doesn't work. And Jesus answered, are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? Most of these tricky questions are because we don't know the Word of God or the Holy Spirit interpreting that Word to us. We're going to be like the angels. Don't misunderstand. You're not going to be angels. We'll be like them. Because there won't be marriage then. Relationships is what he is saying are going to be even better than the best of marriages. And I know people now, don't I? And I'm not going to be less intelligent then. The perfect will have come. So I will know and be known. I don't think it's going to be at all like on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus from another generation and century? And somehow or the other, they just knew did those few disciples. It was Moses and Elijah. How come? I mean, did they have a badge on like in some conferences? I am Moses. I am Elijah. No, it wasn't like that at all. They just knew what they knew. And I think... That's how we will know at that time. It's no surprise that heaven is described in our Bible with gold streets and jewels on the walls and the gates. You have to talk in those earthly terms to try to understand this future with bodies and such a place. And by the way, did you know this? Now that we can get purer light, that which is polarized and laser a hitherto unknown quality of light has been revealed they didn't know this back when they described heaven as John did in the book of Revelation there is isotropic and there is anisotropic isotropic jewels lose all their shininess anisotropics retain the colors of the rainbow. All the jewels used to describe heaven are anisotropic. I think that's one of those little things that you find when you know something about science and something about scripture and see how it all ties together. They didn't know that back then. We know that now. What happened when Jesus died has not happened since, but it's going to happen again on the day Jesus returns. And that means there's one more thing we need to see as a significant thing for this event. We have a better future. Paul knew the truth of this when he wrote to a church and said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. The big question is not why did this happen in my life, but what will I make of it? the future no more hospitals or cemeteries it's never a good thing to lose somebody you love but it's never a bad thing to go to heaven and verse 52 says the tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life holy people are not super saints They are people who have acknowledged God in all of their ways and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And our future is better because there is no condemnation for us but plenty of commendation for us as we get ourselves ready for that better place. Two men were in an art museum and one was a chess master And they were looking at a painting of a chess game with the title, Checkmate. And he said to his friend, you carry on looking around the rooms, I want to study this. And when his friend came back, he was still looking at it, but was a bit agitated. And he said, they are going to have to change the title. Because the king still has one more move. And this is the good news. A little girl dies, but the king still has one more move. A widow's son dies, she's going to live in poverty, but the king still has one more move. So Lazarus dies, and his sisters say, If only you had been here. Do you know what they were looking for? A restoration when Jesus was interested in a resurrection. And you have to let Lazarus die to have a resurrection. And we're in a situation where it seems it's getting worse rather than better. Because God's not interested in restoration but in resurrection and in letting Lazarus die. But the king still has one more move. So the cross says, Jesus you're out of this world. We can get on with our religious festivals. You're done. Three days later the king still has one more move. I don't know what challenge you face. But when it feels like checkmate, that's not all. Let God be busy in your life. He'll bless us with a future. The future is marked not with an exit sign, but with an entrance sign. Because the king still has one more move. And all the people say, Amen.